Hello and welcome to Crime Screen Podcast. My name is Brianna and over there is Courtney. Hello. Before we get started, we just wanted to remind you that if you're not already, you should follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We are Crime Screen Podcast everywhere, and if you need the links for those, they're in our show notes. Hey, leave us a review. Yeah, if you haven't already, we would really appreciate it because we are a new show, so we would really love to have those five stars and positive reviews. And with all that said, we like to just get straight into our case. So this week, we watched There's Something Wrong with Aunt Diane. Oh, God, did we ever. Yeah, this one just really gets me. And I know that it's not just a straight-up true crime story the way that a lot of them are, but it's just such a mystery. And so we definitely are ready to dive into this. This really also, preface, is not a mystery. This is very clear. However, this story, this documentary is a study in denial. Yeah. And how far it can take you. It is not just a river in Egypt. It is insane what you can force yourself to believe because it's really not a mystery. Yeah. I mean, we talked about it before the show. There is part of me that I don't know. I mean, I guess we'll get into it because I have health issues. I'm just like on that camp of like, maybe something medically happened, but no, it doesn't. I mean, I know it's a long shot, but I'm just saying there's just because I've been there, you know? Sure. So we've got two very different perspectives on this one, but I'm still in your camp. I still am like, yeah, this is the only logical conclusion. But I'm in yours too, big time, because as sufferers of migraines as well, what we're going to hear here in this show we've experienced as well as migraine sufferers so for years i was really like i'm a reformed michael jackson right like (laughs) i really believed in the health side of it too there has to be something here but as i've gotten older looked into this more and obsessively researched this since 2009 it's so clear yeah but i'm with you on the let's think this way maybe let's go down this road but we know what happened Yeah, I I think, you know, like I said to you, it just really taps into my worst fears because I have had some crazy medical stuff happen that just seems so nuts that I'm like, this is my worst fear that something unexplained will happen and myself and other people will be hurt or whatever the case is. So I just, of course, I don't hope that that happened, but there is part of me that just feels like, well, what if it did, you know? So anyway, the story itself in the documentary is kind of weaved together and they go back and forth. But what we're going to go through is we're just going to start off with Diane's backstory, then what happened, and then the aftermath, because they kind of do those three parts back and forth through the whole movie. So in order to make it linear, it'll be just easier to do it that way. So let's get to know Diane Schuler a little bit. She grew up about 20 miles away from where the accident happened, and she was the only girl of four siblings. One of the things that they know is a big factor in her life was that her mother left the family when she was very young. And it sounds like her mother actually ran away with another man. That is exactly what they allude to. Nobody ever says it. And most people are like, I really don't even know 
Right. But this is what it seems like. She was such a private person that most people are just like, well, I don't want to say her business or, well, I didn't really get a real clear answer from her. But it sounds like there was someone else involved with her mother. Her friends say that she was the class clown and she always made you laugh. She was really like there's a ton of pictures of her just having fun with her friends. She was pretty popular. Her childhood friends say that she won a ton of yearbook votes like class clown, loudest, most fun to be around, stuff like that. She was extremely responsible from an early age and she had to take care of the house and her family after her mother left, she became the caregiver for everyone. And everybody talks about that from her childhood, that she was doing the laundry, the dishes, ironing. I mean, for four brothers, I believe three brothers, four brothers and her father. So either way, it's like four men that little Diane, who I believe was the youngest. Yeah. Only girl is completely supporting and taking care of her family, like as the housewife. Mm-hmm. And that is what she started doing it like six years old right that's what she knows yeah and it seems to be a huge factor in her just developing this kind of personality trait of being a caregiver being overly responsible being maybe to the point of controlling you know and also being a bit secretive and very much a perfectionist yeah her future husband danny who we'll meet in the documentary was actually diane's first serious boyfriend And Danny's parents say that they were madly in love. And she, of course, took great care of him. That was what she did. And his mother, her mother-in-law, states that she knew that Danny was her oldest son. Yeah. And that that's what she was getting. That he was just in that role of he kind of needed to be taken care of. Yeah, he was like useless is what his mother basically says. That (laughs) like she takes care of him. It sounded like that. I was like, damn, mom's cold. Yeah. Diane also really excelled in her career as well. So not only at home, but in business, she was really on top of things. She worked her way up to director of credit billing and collections at Cablevision Media, and she was earning a six-figure salary. She was the breadwinner in their house. Her coworker says that she was really amazing at her job and seems like she was really always willing to help people, always willing to do a little bit extra if someone was away and kind of put together. She sounded like she was the party planning committee, too. Absolutely. She was, yeah, there for everyone. People really over and over again in the documentary say that they don't know how she got so much done. And was so organized at the same time. So another thing the mother-in-law specifically says that I always remember is she says that she didn't know how she gets it all done because she knew that Danny did nothing. So she was working eight to five. She gets off work. She gets home around six, six to seven is, you know, uh, dinner and then seven to eight baths. She's got the two kids. Everybody's in bed. Danny is at work. They have different schedules, this and that. She then goes home. Then she has to get herself ready for work. Then she cleans the house. Then she does this. Then she does the dishes, ironing. Where is the time? And the mother-in-law is his Danny's mom is just, I never knew how she did it. I didn't ask questions because I didn't want to pry because Diane was so private, but she got it done. Right. 
And people will say just like. And Danny was useless. And everyone knew that. That is like direct quote. Yeah. <laughs> His mother and father. Pretty much everybody says the same things. No use for him. Yeah. And it seems like everybody's kind of impressed with her. Like even her baby clothes were ironed. Like who yes. irons a onesie? You know? Yes. She was above and beyond. Where did she find the time? Yeah. She was also highly involved in volunteering at her kid's school, even though, of course, she had a full-time job. Field trips, chaperoning things, daytime at the school. She was there. Anything they needed. Other parents felt guilty that they weren't there as much as she was. Yeah, it seems like even parents that are like, well, I work part-time or I'm a stay-at-home mom and I didn't do as much as she did and she worked full-time. Yeah. Yeah. It seems that she was really trying to be the opposite of her own mother. Right. You know, she was just kind of making up for that. Like, okay, my mom wasn't there. She completely abandoned us. Now I'm going to be completely different as a mom. I feel like this is also control because her state of normalcy is cleaning up, taking care of, making things perfect. And she's been doing it since she was eight. So if she's not in a state of like consistent cleaning and keeping things together, controlling the situation, she's falling apart. Yeah. Or getting angry or just feeling anxiety that she does not want to feel. Yeah, it's kind of a learned coping behavior. To Absolutely. Keep things in order and avoid that anxiety of not knowing what's up. So the only thing that people said leading up to her accident was that she had some tooth pain going on. But even then, people were just like, yeah, but she didn't really mention it a lot. I just saw her holding her cheek or whatever. It wasn't even like she talked about it. She was very private and even kind of closed off. She just wouldn't talk about her dental issues. Her very best friend said that she wouldn't talk about her marriage to her or really anything that was bothering her. She just kept it all in. Her family does admit that Diane actually smoked weed on occasion, but they seem kind of evasive when they're talking about it. Did you get kind that? Kind of. <laughs> Seem evasive. They are evasive. Yeah, it really. Yeah, I have strong feelings about this one. Sorry. <laughs> Very strong. <laughs> Let's preface. It's striking to me that Danny would talk looking away from the camera. And then at the end of his sentence, he would look back at the camera. That was the biggest thing that really was a red flag to me. If you're being honest, you just say it directly. And, you know, us, of course, we're crime screen. We watch every documentary on true crime and some that aren't on true crime. Like, I've seen people talk to cameras. If there's something to hide, you look away. So he gets up there and he, like, he talks. All the, you'll see him later in press conferences too, right? He gets up there. And even when he's saying things like, I never saw her drunk since the day I met her. He can't look at the camera. He can't even no. look who he's talking to in the eye. Everything. And... You know, later you'll find out, and they, I don't think this is actually in the movie, but a friend, they have said that a friend named Sheila, she would meet her after work in a Long Island bar, and she would drink with Sheila before she would go home. Always screwdrivers, and always complain about her marriage. Really? Yes. She had a secret life where she, she was just completely open with people. This is what happened here. I'm telling you, like... <laughs> Drinking and having fun. She had a whole other secret life going on that was private, and that's why she was so private. She could not let anybody see what was really going on. Hmm. Yeah, I haven't heard about Sheila. And I'm telling you, you go deep. It takes a lot to find this Sheila woman, and they don't talk about it a lot. I believe it's a lot of hearsay. However, everything else we know about Diane, I believe this. Hmm. Completely. And it was a work drinking... Chick. It was a chick she knew from work. So 
there's a name. There's a last name that goes with Sheila. <laughs> she just doesn't want to be public. Yeah. Understandable. Yeah. Of course, you don't want to be that person coming forward and saying anything contrary to everybody's positive things they have to say about Diane. It makes sense. Danny says that they had a great weekend at Hunter Lake Campground with all the kids leading up to the accident. Interesting fact is that when they get to the campground and they ask him later, they're interviewing Danny. Hey, when did you get there? He lies in the first interview and tells the police he got there at Thursday, the day before, when in fact he only got there Friday, five hours before Diane. Why would you lie about that? That's weird. What's up, Danny? Side note. Continue. <laughs> I know. I got a lot of them. You know everything. <laughs> well, no, I just question this asshole. Yeah. Why, why would he? Why? What's the lie? Yeah, you're not a fan of Danny. No. No. He's useless according to his mother. It's really hard to be on Danny's side, to be honest. Danny has gone through a lot. He's his own worst enemy. Even though he's he can't get out of his own a way. lot, he's yeah. still created his own problems. So Daniel says that that morning, everything was normal. They cleaned up their camper, he cleaned up the boat, they packed, they got the kids up, and they just had a normal breakfast and got on the road. Everything was normal. So the woman who worked at the campgrounds said goodbye to Diane and briefly spoke with the kids at 9.30. And she says nothing seemed wrong at all. And specifically, she says that Diane seemed sober. At 9.56, Diane arrived with the kids at McDonald's. And again, she's on surveillance and she seems completely sober. The people that work there that they talked to said she seemed fine. Side note, another thing not mentioned is that she goes into the McDonald's. She sends the kids to the play area. She buys the kids McDonald's. They just had like coffee at the campsite. Sends the kids to go play. Now you're on a trip going home. You got a place to be. You're not going to waste a bunch of time like letting the kids play and all this. They also don't say she buys an extra large orange juice at the McDonald's. Is not really seen outside with the kids, which makes me think she's in the car making drink. Hmm. But they never, they never talk about that. So she's inside on surveillance video. The kids are playing. There's McDonald's footage. Hmm. Yeah. The kids are outside. She goes in and out. She goes in and out. And then she's out there with the kids and they're eating. And even the employees later say, you know, yeah, the kids were there. She was getting things, doing this, you know, back and forth. And then they leave. Hmm. But they were there for a while. And if you're going home and the kids have to be home at a certain time for play practice, all these things, what are you doing? Yeah. Wasting like two hour window when you're only driving like an hour. Yeah, they were on a schedule. They yes. had a play to actually be at that afternoon. So it doesn't really make sense. She would be just hanging out at McDonald's. You would just you wouldn't even let the kids play. You would just drive through and throw the bags at them in the back seat. <laughs> right. And just right. like eat this. We're on our way home. That's what my parents would do for Mine? sure. Mine? <laughs> Hell yes. So again, people say that she seemed completely sober at this point. At 1046, she stops at a gas station and she asked for some headache medicine, but they actually didn't have any. So she left with nothing. And we see this surveillance video on the documentary. Seems absolutely normal. It is slowed down. So she does pull in like a bat out of hell. You see it on the on the actual footage pull and pulls out. Same thing. Just really like. Quickly. Yeah. But as far as her kind of walking demeanor. Around, yeah. No, she's the know. way that she carries on a brief conversation and then walks out. It does seem like she's not, you know, having trouble walking and stuff like that. She looks, you know, like she's in a hurry, but that's it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like she's on a mission. That's it. 
again, the person working at the gas station. And like we said on the video, it does seem like at this point she's sober. At 11.37, Diane calls the girl's mother, Jackie Hance, to say that they are running late. Then at 12, people begin seeing the van driving erratically. And in the documentary, we see multiple witnesses that say that she got so close to them that they had to honk at her or swerve out of the way. People also saw her pull off to a rest area, get out of the car, and then double over as if she was getting sick. People saw this twice, that she'd pulled over and looked like she was going to puke. And they were like, yeah, she totally looked like she was getting sick is usually the way they describe it. But she's vomiting on the side of the road. The other thing is she did actually hit a car. Really? Yes. When she was driving and just like a psycho and was running up on people and like tailgating and tailgating and tailgating, she really did actually bump one of those cars. And they were just like, oh, my God, and got out of the way. It's weird because the the behavior that they're describing, and I really do appreciate how many witnesses that they just so many. On. I mean, there's, you know, what, like 20 people? Easily. That are just sitting there saying exactly what happened to their car, what they saw. They're describing the way she looked, the way she was holding the wheel, the whole thing. And I really appreciate all of their descriptions. But it seems like so many people described her being almost aggressive. Oh, that's the exact word. Yeah, like not out of control, but actually like coming up on them like she was trying to, like if you were in a road rage incident, right? It's like you're in a, no, you're running from the cops is what it sounded like. Mm. It was like a car chase. She's weaving in and out. She's trying to, you know, like go around honking, going riding up on people, backing up, going around this one, driving on shoulders, going around 10 and two, hands pinned, no deviation, just flying down the road with five kids in the car. Yeah, it does seem On the Taconic State Parkway at this point. Right. Yeah. At 12.55, Diane dials a wrong number. Then at 1 o'clock, she calls Jackie Hance, and she sounds disoriented. This is about two hours from McDonald's. Right. So that's about right. She hangs up after that, and then Jackie tells her husband, of course, and Warren Hance calls Diane back. He said that she didn't sound like herself, and she called him Danny, her husband's name, and he could hear the kids crying in the backgrounds. And Warren is Diane's brother. Right. And Jackie is the sister-in-law, and they're driving Warren's Ford Windstar that's red that they had borrowed for the camping trip. At this point, they are actually pulled over onto the side of the road. Her oldest niece gets on the phone with her dad and says, there's something wrong with Aunt Diane, she can't see. So her dad tells her just to stay there and just tell them what sign that she sees, where they are, so that he can come get them. And he starts heading to where they are. At 110, someone dials three wrong numbers from Diane's phone. Before 115, she leaves her phone on the guide rail by the Tappan Zee Bridge. Now, this, they pull over. She has just talked to her brother and Jackie, and she sounds nuts. And her little niece has now just blown shit up and ratted her out. Something's up. So she pulls over, and she's standing there with the phone. And honestly, I think she set it down because you're not going to call and rat me out again. Like, I'm already in trouble. Mm -hmm. Shit, I'm blown now. They're coming to get me. We got trouble. And she left her phone there. Honestly, I think it was so nobody else can call again. Because it was it was deliberate. 
Yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm of the camp that just feels she was just so out of it that she just set it down and left it there. But I see I just, that too. Just because it's like there's obviously something going very wrong in her brain. And she doesn't, I think, think to just keep the phone in her hand, not set it down. Sure. Except the last phone call when the little girl was, you know, there's something wrong with Aunt Angie. She rips the phone from her and takes it and, you know, basically was, you know, don't talk, don't say anything else, whatever. Takes the phone and then tries to fix it with her brother Warren. She's trying to fix it. You know, oh, they're just being silly. They're just being silly. Like, that's what she tells him. And then she accidentally calls him Danny and hangs up. And I think that that's when it's like, oh, shit. Something they know something's wrong. They don't know what, but something's up, and they're going to find out when they find me. And if these kids keep calling, then they're going to find me. But if I just get on this road and go haul an ass, I can get home before them, and I can fix this. I can make up a story and say, "Oh, we were just this. We were just that." She doesn't have to answer to anybody else or hear the kids crying in the background if they call again. Yeah, I don't. I'm. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I think when you're in that situation. Oh, I'm sure we're trying- both wrong on what really happened, but. <laughs> And you're trying to conceal something, it gets to a point of desperation. And that may have been a desperate move. But it's also just as likely, you know, either way, it's really a 50-50. It could have been so deliberate because she really does think she can finally get this under control again. Yes, that's what I think. But it could also just be like she's just so messed up, like she just leaves it there. It's really kind of 50-50 to me. And I know that the phone, some dude was just like pulled over because it's a pullout. So he pulled over at Tappan Zee Bridge, same spot, and he just sees a phone like three days later. He picks it up. He hits home and realizes it's Diane Schuler's phone. It's part of this. And he calls the police and gives them their phone. So now at this point, once she leaves the phone on the Tappan Zee Bridge, the Schuler and Hans families are all coordinating to locate the van and get to wherever they are. They're calling 911. They're doing phone tracking, trying to get the phone company involved. They're actually driving towards them. Anything they could do to finally find the van. In this movie, you get a plethora of 911 calls to hear, and it is just chilling. Yeah, very just frantic and so many so emotional it's just heartbreaking at this point witnesses start to see her coming onto the ramp going south in the northbound lanes then a handful of people of course start calling 911 to report the van that's going the wrong way witnesses say that she was going about 70 miles per hour and she was not swerving at all she was just going straight as a pin Like you said, she was just 10 and 2. Everyone describes her face as being calm, not trying to dodge other vehicles coming, just going straight. That she was skillfully driving as well, like very precise movements. These were skilled decisions she was making. She wasn't just like guiding, swerving around. One of the things that's incredible to me is that she was actually driving for 1.7 miles before the actual crash. That's a long time to be going the opposite direction. That's why a lot of people think that she was trying to kill herself. Yeah, that's a long time. It's a very long time. At this point, Diane hits the Bastardi's vehicle head on. And both vehicles went off the sides of the road before the van caught fire. Volunteers pulled the kids out of the car before the fire was just completely engulfing the van. And Brian was actually underneath a lot of the other kids. 
And he was the only one that was responsive when they pulled him out. So they prioritized getting him to the ambulance before anyone else. So at the end of the day, she killed eight people, herself, her daughter, her three nieces, and all three people in the oncoming vehicle. The victims were Michael Bastardi, who was 81, Guy Bastardi, who was 49, Daniel Longo, 74, herself, her two-year-old daughter, Erin, and her nieces, Kate Hance, who was five, Allison, who was seven, and Emma Hance, who was eight. The Schulers first thought that Brian had died. And you see them telling the story of just how initially when they heard about everything, they didn't know that Brian was the only one that survived. They thought that he was the only one that passed. So they were really suspended in not knowing until they got more information. Brian, who was the only survivor, is only five years old. And so the way he describes it was that mommy's head hurt. She couldn't see. And even when they press him further and keep going with the issue, he insists that that's all he knows. And his story has never changed. He says also that after that, he flew out of the car like Superman. And this is, I really, the first time I ever saw this and when I see this little boy and I hear what his description is, mommy's head hurt, she couldn't see. That's a migraine. That's an aura migraine, you know, with visuals. I mean, I've had migraines I couldn't see and, you know, okay. I was honestly just like, oh, she had a horrible migraine and she was just trying to, you know, self-medicate, basically. But, I I don't even know. Nobody ever mentions anything about migraines. And to me, that's a really easy out. Nobody says anything about, hey, it was a migraine. Yeah, it is really, you know, one of the things that doesn't seem very explored. Not They're at all. talking all, all about a stroke. Diabetic about, this and right, everything. A tooth abscess. There's yeah. plenty of things that they bring up and not migraines. It seems a little strange. It seems obvious to me. Yeah. After the accident, Diane's husband, Danny, does a press conference saying what a wonderful wife and mother she was. And he says specifically that he would marry her again tomorrow if he could. Yeah, I bet, because she takes real good care of him. (laughs) He doesn't do shit. But everyone's seeing this for the first time where they're first really, you know, Like, you have to put yourself in the place of a person tuning into the news and seeing that press conference. Yeah, yeah, You're going to see this guy, (laughs) you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) That really is portraying a perfect marriage and a perfect woman, someone that, you know, how could this happen? It seems like one of the ultimate, just unexplainable things. The father of the three girls, Warren, Hans, spoke at the funeral and he praised Diane. He just said wonderful things about her as a mom and and whatnot. But he actually broke down, of course, when he started urging other people to remember to hug their children. That recording of Warren Hance speaking at the funeral is very just absolutely so tragically sad. But to me, the worst part, I have chills right now, is when he starts talking about hug your children and you hear the people in the background start falling apart and you just hear just like people are just it is so sad and that to me is like the moment where i'm just like oh my god i'll never forget like the first time i saw this that was what got me really like hard was when you hear the other people just 
completely breaking down at that funeral. Yeah, it's just so terrible that Warren is sitting there sticking up for her. Five days after the funeral, Diane's autopsy results were announced, and it was found that she had a blood alcohol level of 0.19, and the legal limit is 0.08. They specifically say that this would be approximately 10 drinks. She also had what they refer to as high levels of THC in her system. So this is the point where it completely breaks down. There's this picture that has been painted by the husband and the brother whose, whose daughters passed away, who publicly are just praising her motherhood and what a wonderful woman she is. And all of a sudden that starts to shatter at this point. There was also a bottle of vodka found in her van, and Danny doesn't think that she was drinking. He specifically says that she had just put it in there while they were packing. The Schuler attorney holds a press conference at this point, and the family insists that she was not an alcoholic. And the attorney is Dominic Barber, who has since been disbarred, arrested, like all kinds of crazy. She's had like domestic violence charges. He choked someone, tried to kill him. Crazy shit. He specifically says when he gets up there, I just want you to know that this is ill-advised. I did not tell them to have this press conference. Did you catch that? No, I didn't. I don't remember that. Yes. When they come up and they're just like, "Okay, we're going to have a press conference. He gets to the mic before anybody. He goes, I did not advise this. This was very ill-advised. I do not agree with this, you know. And then Danny Schuler gets up there and just starts talking shit. <sighs> yeah, they just have this press conference where they insist she was not an alcoholic, despite that there's, you know, to everybody on the outside, this proof that she was drinking that day. So at this point, of course, they're really sticking with that story, and they decide to work with the filmmakers to make this documentary in an attempt to clear Diane's name. Her husband says that he wants another autopsy done, and he wants to find out if she had a stroke, specifically. He really insists that something medical must have happened to Diane. He has to. This man knows nothing about his wife. He knows he is so not even in tune. He has to just, he can't believe, he can't even let himself think that this could happen. How could he have not known all of this? He has to think it's a medical thing. Because otherwise, if you're a normal person, you'd be like, oh, I should have seen this, right? Like maybe there's some liability. Because they were trying to possibly charge him that he knew she had this problem and let her drive. But hmm. he got out of that because oh, she never drank a day in her life. I've never seen her drunk since the day we met. Stop. I just can't with him. Yeah, I think that, you know, at the very best, like we know about families of alcoholics, there's just a lot of denial that goes on. That's how it works. So best case scenario, he's just really in the deepest denial that she could have been drinking. He just really can't believe it. That is his reality. I think that there is a good case to make for him just not believing it at all, you know, but I don't know. I think there's other things that he must see that he still has to deny it, even if there's evidence to the contrary. The Hans family declined to participate in the documentary, but the family members of the other victims in the oncoming car actually agreed to be in the film. The people in the oncoming car, again, were Guy Bastardi, Michael Bastardi, and Daniel Longo. Guy Bastardi's sisters and Daniel Longo's brother feel a lack of closure, 
and that their brother's life was cut short. The sisters, Roseanne and Margaret, pray for all the people that lost their lives that day. And even Diane, they say that they pray for her. But the thing that they have trouble with is they can't forgive the family that is still alive, Danny and his sister-in-law, Jay, because they're working so hard to clear Diane's name. They believe that the denial and covering it up just enables other people to do the same thing. Roseanne and Margaret believe that the right thing to do would be just to admit that she was drunk and just say sorry and use it as a cautionary tale to just look after your family. I swear this is when I just have, I just sit and go, uh, yeah, finally someone is making some damn sense. Those three men were on their way to their house for like Sunday dinner, you know, just like a normal day. And then, yeah, their life was just cut ridiculously short and they don't have any closure. And I get it. And one of the sisters so smart, understands it. She says, what transpired between you and your wife? What has happened to your family, especially in the campground? What happened that night at the campground? Like, what the fuck went down that she, I mean, honestly, she's probably hung over in a tear of the dog on Sunday morning. Let's be real. But what happened that night between you and your family? Like, how do you not know? And it's it's a really great question that we won't get an answer to. Yeah, I mean, I think that we haven't gotten much reality and honesty from the Schuler family. But I think that they truly believe what they're saying. That is the reality. That is the most honest thing that they could say. I think they believe it. But for someone who's on the oncoming car, who just senselessly, you know, Diane just ran into them, of course, they've got their mind is just reeling with questions about what really happened, you know, because they were the ones that have no context. They were the ones that have never seen or known of Diane before. So they want answers to those questions of what was going on in their marriage, what was going on in her life, because that's the only way to make sense of it. Absolutely. They have every right to ask that. And also, you know, there's 0.19 in her bloodstream. But there was also, I want to, it was like five to 10 drinks also undigested in her stomach. We're not talking like a shot or two, like hair of the dog Sunday morning, you know, you get drunk or something Saturday night, whatever. Fought with your husband because he's a douchebag. And Sunday morning you wake up and you pound a few because you got a headache. (laughs) Okay. But like, we're talking crazy amount. This is 20 drinks now. It's like 10 to 15 drinks minimum is what it equates to. That's just crazy. That's a long-term functioning alcoholic, somebody who has been drinking this long for a long time. And when you are like that, driving drunk is not a big deal. And you drive drunk all the time. And so you're totally confident that you'll be fine. You can do it. And then these little girls blow up your story. I just, it's it's just so tragic everywhere. Everywhere you look, including Diane. Yeah. Yeah, all the other families are just really upset that they're still maintaining her innocence in light of all the things that, like you said, we know none of the evidence supports what they're saying. None. Not even the time they got there. (laughs) I mean, what? The Schuler family is so convinced that they actually hire a private investigator named Tom Ruskin who found nothing but essentially disappeared, charged them a ton of money, didn't really find any results, and then 
All about um, the cash. Yeah. This guy. He, he it sounded like he was just extorting them the same, like the whole time. And when the documentary crew contacted Tom Ruskin, he essentially demanded 20K to just be in the dock. Yeah. He demanded uh, 25, usually 30 for me to even get out of bed, basically. Yeah. That's what he says. The way that he states it is just like, well, for us to pull the records and that for, was it. you know, to, for, Get it out to of make storage. it worth our time to just pull the boxes out of storage, it's just ridiculous. Everything, everything digital now, stop. $1,000 to go retrieve a box in your <laughs> office. Know, right? What the hell? He is a real piece of work. So... The documentary crew is able themselves to actually get her medical records. And they show that she had prescriptions for hydrocodone and Ambien in the years prior. But it doesn't seem recent. No. And the Ambien thing is another where the Diane Schuller apologists or whatever, you know, she's innocent, comes in is that a lot of people think maybe she took Ambien the night before. And people, you know, you do crazy shit on Ambien. Like, for real. If you don't go right to sleep... That is a wild ride all night long. I'm serious. Go online, look it up. I got stories too. But I, you don't need mine. Go on the internet and look up ambient after effects, right? So a lot of people side with that and say, oh, she was under the influence of ambient. I've done crazy shit too. That's what happened. But there was no ambient in her system. There was just a lot of alcohol. Yeah, that's the and thing. Wait. Like we THC. know the medical records state that she had the prescriptions. However, those would show up on the autopsy if they were in her system. So it doesn't seem like those were factors at all, just going off of what was in her system. At this point, they bring in a forensic psychiatrist to do a forensic psychiatric autopsy. And he looked at footage of the family, listened to stories, and kind of tried to put together a picture and he says that either the whole family has to accept that Diane was actually a bad person, did something wrong, made a mistake, or they have to fight to prove that she was good. And obviously, they're choosing to fight. The filmmakers arranged to have a DNA test done to match Diane's known DNA from her household items to the DNA that was on the toxicology reports. Husband, sweet, loving, caring Danny extraordinaire, walks into her room with a plastic trash bag and pulls a sweater shirt vest thing combo from Ann Taylor out and holds it up and, and just takes it and then just tosses it in this trash bag. And it's really just a weird moment. I felt like it was just kind of strange to me. Like, number one, it's her. You don't need to do a DNA test again. And then the way he handles her things, I know if I'm dead, I'm not going to care. But it was kind of like, I don't want to be doing this, is what it felt like. I don't mm. even care. His sister-in-law, Jay, I think became the motivation that Diane gave him prior. If he hadn't been told we're doing this, he wouldn't give a shit. But we're doing this now, Danny. This is what you're doing Put it in the bag. And it looks like an insolent kid. Like, I gotta clean my fucking room. Now I gotta clean up my dead wife's clothes. Like, it feels weird. Am I grasping? Well, I, I think that because <laughs> I was just talking about this earlier today. When you decide you don't like someone, 
in general. Like if I decide I don't like someone, they can't do anything right. And I do think that you're in that mind frame because I didn't pick that up at all. But when you say it, I'm like, well, yeah, he seemed maybe it struck me as like, well, he's like a working class blue collar dude. He's not going to be dainty with her stuff. I just don't think that that would be his kind of way of touching things. But that's just the way that I looked at it, you know? But I think that when you decide he's a bad dude, that's kind of what you got to think is it's like malicious, he's resentful. And I do think there's something to Jay pushing it forward more than he does. I'm with you on that one. She became Diane. And you can see it in the in the documentary. She and became Diane. Even though he does want to clear her name, she seems far more passionate about it. And I think that he would have lost motivation to keep going without her pushing. Just what happens with the private investigator tells you he doesn't give a shit. He is not pushing. It's Jay. And then he tells Jay, back off. And nothing happens. But here's the thing. I'm an adult. I can say, you know what? You're right. You're actually right that I, Courtney, have made a decision that I don't like him. (laughs) And it is absolutely tainting all of my decision making and like comments about him. However, I don't hate him in the sense that I don't think he's a bad guy. I think he's just an idiot. I think he is just a loser. Like, really, I think he's just he has no basis of like functioning by himself as an adult he's a giant child he's an adult baby he's a grown baby no i totally and i don't i don't get i don't do well with grown baby men (laughs) so i think that it's like trigger i hate the word it's like pinging off my cell tower that i don't like baby men and that is what this guy is i totally understand there it is yeah seeing him on screen and hearing people talk about him and even like you said his own mother there's so many people that shouldn't be saying those things about this person. It really paints a picture of what a child he is. And his brother Jimmy is married to Jay. And Jimmy allows Jay to spend 99% of her time with his brother, I think, because Jimmy knows Danny's useless. Danny can't do shit for himself. And they say it later again. They say it all through it. But they know he needs a goddamn woman to hold his hand. And when Diane met him, they say that he met her at a wedding. She had lost all this weight. She had always been a heavier girl. She lost tons of weight. She was looking great. Her confidence was through the roof. She met Danny at a wedding and it was over. She was like, I'm going to marry him. He's really good looking guy. I'm with him now. He's with me. Let's do this. And she could control it. She could run the show. And I really think that she saw him and was like, he ain't going to fight me. Let's go. Yeah. And she had no foundation, no mother, no anybody to tell her like, hey, red flag on the play, right? Anything. So I just, I just, this one really like my heart. Yeah, I just definitely see him as not being capable of functioning. Incapable. someone else, you know? Sorry. Which is why Jay has to step in and it's just, he just can't do it. That's never been his thing. Being a grown up is not going to be something Danny can cope with. Grown baby. So then the filmmakers arranged for a meeting with Dr. Werner Spitz to discuss the autopsy results and possible retesting. And he's supposed to be the kind of expert that can give them some answers about the test results and some answers about the process. And you know, Werner, he's the one that every case ever, OJ, he's come on and done stuff, uh, Michael Jackson's and, you know, every high profile murder case Werner Spitz has had something to do with the forensic analysis. 
Yeah, he's a familiar face. If you're into true crime, you're going to be like, hey, it's that guy. The one with the accent. Right. The one that's, yeah, he's got that accent. Yep. So he reads over all the test results, looks over the paperwork, and says that everything looks okay with the autopsy. He says specifically there's no errors that he can tell, and their only course of action would be to retest. And who can accept this? Danny, no, no, I'm not going to take it. And the look on Dr. Spitz's face is just exasperated. He just can't understand. He's telling, you know, hey, this is fine what you think, but you will never be able to get past the fact that she has alcohol in her system. That will always be the question. It was great. Maybe she had a stroke. Maybe this happened. That's fine. We'll find that out too. You can look into that. But no matter what, This will always be first. And you can't answer this. The only answer is she was drunk. Yeah, he really does push to them. And he tries to really be as compassionate as possible, even for and he's so like he's trying to search for the words in his thick German accent. And he's trying to just be really sweet about it. But he says his quote is, the alcohol will always prevail. There it is. So when they find any other additional medical records, it's highly possible there's something there, but he says that it would never take away the fact that the alcohol is in her system. There is no other medical anomaly that would explain the presence of alcohol. You know, it's not like it would be like, oh, here's this rare stroke that causes your blood alcohol to go up. There is a thing that I read. I swear to God, people, they somebody's like, hey, does she have brewery syndrome or something where your body in digestion produces as a byproduct like extra amounts of ethanol and you can and I'm just the things people want to grasp at. Right. But it, it just. That would have presented itself earlier. Yes. She would have known about that earlier. She would have seemed drunk earlier, like if that was the case, you know? The other thing, too, at this moment, there's a really interesting thing that happens here. I don't know if anyone else catches on but me. I'm very into this. Jay has a moment of clarity in this meeting where she sits back and there is a moment where she is ready to accept. She's like really thinking it like, you know what? Maybe... There is something to it. You know, maybe if you're telling me, Dr. Spitz, this and this and this. And every time she starts to, okay, so what you're telling, you know, work it out. Danny was a stroke, diabetic coma. Like, and and she just has to clam up every time because now he's talking and this is really about him. This isn't, you know, she knows. She knows. There's this moment. You see it. She knows. Yeah, I think that you see her very tired, exhausted, and then afterwards, she's very just done. She's ready to move on, but she still wants to fight, you know, and when he starts coming back with other answers, then she's like, okay, all right, we're still fighting. We're not accepting. She thought it was over. Yeah, I think that she was like, well, if he was like ready to accept it, she would have backed down too. Yep. You know, but it does seem like a particularly tense meeting. Everyone in the room is very tense and he's really trying his best to explain to them that what they're insisting may have happened or what they want to test for is not really possible. You know, Danny is not listening either. He's never listening. He's quick to speak. He's not like quick to listen and slow to, you know, he's, he is waiting to talk. He's not hearing you. He's waiting to tell you what he's thinking. And that's all you see. He's not listening to what Spitz is saying. Jay is. 
yeah, she really wants to get the information. And when she asks questions, you see that it's just because she wants to get more from him. But Danny's just like there to tell somebody that they're wrong, kind of. Yup. And I can't do it. (laughs) Yeah. So the problem is that the medical examiner says that a retest was already performed by their private investigator, Tom Ruskin. But the lab will not release the results to anyone but Tom. And, of course, Tom had been kind of dodging their phone calls for a while. And eventually, we see Jay place a phone call, leave a message for him, ask him to call back, and he actually calls Jay back. And Tom says that they retested everything, and the results came back exactly the same. And he had tried to call her, but she was told by Danny not to answer the phone. So when he tried to call her, she didn't answer. And he was trying to call her with the results. And that was like six months prior. And then after that, yeah, he doesn't answer the phone anymore. Yeah. And she says, I was told not to call. I think that Tom Ruskin is definitely not a good person. No. He's terrible. But they've painted him in an even worse light when half of the fault was theirs. Because, you know, if you're trying to get a hold of this person, you can't just suddenly ghost them. And it sounds like they tried for however long and were just like, we're not getting anywhere. And then they decided to cut him off. And of course, they needed to get those results. But it was it was too late. There's a moment, too, when he's explaining to Jay, you know, about the results and everything. He gives her the results and tells her, like, hey, this is what's going on. It's exactly the same. It's the Nothing same. Nothing was different. And he doesn't sound like somebody who's really been trying to, like, dodge her. No, no. Like, at all. He's very forthcoming. He's not even supposed to really tell her. He's supposed to be telling Danny the results legally. But he tells her straight up. He just goes, listen, this is what the results were. They were the same. You guys are dumb. It's the same. Like, I can't help you anymore. It's the same. And he, she even says... Tom, tell me what to do now. What do we do now? And he's just like, there's nothing. I mean, what do you mean? What do I do now? He just wants to say, like, Diane did it. She was not like, hello. And he can't say that. And she's just not going to listen. You know, it's just poor Jay at that moment, honestly. Yeah. She's spinning. Even though I obviously just don't like Tom Ruskin. No, of course. He's a bad person. Really, once the phone call is happening, I kind of came around to just feeling like he wasn't evading them. He just couldn't get it through their heads that the reality of what happened was what was, you know, in the autopsy report originally. And so once he couldn't convince them of the truth of what happened, like you said, he can't flat out be rude to them. He doesn't want to go overboard. So he has to kind of stop taking their phone calls because their phone calls become nonsensical at some point, right? Where it's like, yeah, that doesn't make sense if the autopsy is revealing one thing, we retested, it says the same thing, there's nothing else I can do for you, period. So he had to kind of give up. And I don't think that he was evading them as severely as they were thinking. He just didn't want to be mean, you know? Also... I'm willing to bet a lot of money that I don't have. If Tom Ruskin did this and the results came back different, you better believe he would have let them know that. They would have known that instantly. He would have gotten to them. And it would have been a big publicity Oh thing my God, the ride that. he could have taken that. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. 
So at that point, we're just kind of at a dead end. I mean, the documentary really is at a dead end. There was nothing conclusive that was different, right? So they kind of show how everybody's doing, and Brian, the surviving child, seems to be doing well. Shockingly well. Yeah. He's walking. The kid can talk. I mean, he his dexterity in his hands and feet, and like that. I'm like, he's not in a bed somewhere. He's not in a chair for life. Yeah, he's really miraculously made a huge recovery. He, the only thing that's going on with him is that he has oculi motor nerve palsy, which affects the movement in his right eye. And that's it. Yeah, he had a major head injury, and that's, you know, affected that. But he's just had surgery. He does these daily eye exercises. He's not really having this consistent long-term damage that you would expect from what he survived. Since the accident, the sister-in-law, like we said, Jay, takes care of Brian three to four days a week and on weekends. With her own husband and family, she has a son who's older. You know, he's he's an adult, but she's got her own life. Yeah. And she's essentially raising this kid. Daniel Schuler says it's extremely difficult to be a single father, although we know that he's not because Jay's doing everything. And Jay expresses irritation with him and says that she does most of, of everything and he does nothing, in her words. He says that Diane was the one that wanted kids, not him, which is one of the saddest things to me. When he says that he's walking along with Brian... And like it's a voiceover and he's walking along with Brian and the whole time you watch him with this kid, he doesn't act like a parent, like a father with this child. that's like his miracle baby. Right. Right. The only one left. Like, I'm never putting you down again. He is not a warm and fuzzy person at all in general, like just at all. We know this, but especially to little Brian. And it is so bizarre. And the other thing is this motherfucker works nights. He's a security guard that goes in. He does the four to midnight. So they had opposite schedules. So that means that he is home and off all day. And Jay screams at that tele- at that camera how many times? He's off. He's off. He's off. During the day, he's off. Like she says it 10 fucking times. What is he doing all day? Why can't he do this? And then he has the nerve to talk about on the camera say, being a single father is so hard. I didn't even want to have kids. But you still don't. I mean, what are we talking about? Yeah. He goes to school and then he goes to Jay's and then he goes to sleep. What's striking to me even beyond that is how unbelievably heartless it is to say that when you know that the Hans family lost three daughters. You're saying you didn't even want kids. You are treating the surviving child like a burden when Jackie and Warren Hans would give anything to have their daughters back it is so cruel to say that in this context and he has so little self-awareness he doesn't even realize like it kind of comes off as i wish i had no one left right it really does i mean he's saying he wishes he had a clean slate it's very scott peterson (laughs) it's just really really awful and he had cheated on he had cheated on diane He'd had an affair and all this and it almost like makes me wonder if he hadn't, you know, like hoped so that he could start his life over. There's I know I'm saying a lot of really harsh things. Watch it. I think that you go into this documentary thinking that you're going to feel like Diane is a villain. Yes. And at the end of the day, I kind of only feel like Danny is a villain. And I am 
so just just disgusted with drunk drivers, to be honest. But I feel like Diane really just fucked up. I mean, I I just I don't feel like she's a villain. She made a mistake, and it, it's a tragic mistake. I feel like Danny has an opportunity to make things right, do right by his son, you know, try and tr- turn this tragedy into something positive, m- maintain a better relationship with the Hans family, something, apologize to people. But at every turn, he just is a dick. You know? This is the perfect time for me to tell you something here that I was going to say for the absolute very, very end. But the morning after this movie premiered, Daniel Schuler sued Warren and Jackie Hance for being liable since Diane was driving the minivan during the accident. Really? He also sued the state for not having clear and large signs to make sure that his wife wouldn't have been able to be confused and drive on to the Totomac Parkway in her blinding drunk state. The day after this movie came out, he sued the goddamn parents that lost all three of their children. Whoa. And his wife killed them. I mean, let's be real. His his children were murdered by her. I did not and know he that. sued them for being liable for their deaths because Diane was driving their minivan that she borrowed so she could take their kids on this camping trip. I mean, I hate him. Wow. I have like near tears in my eyes. I just hate him. Like, oh my god! And all of these, qu- he sued a ton of people, and they all settled out of court. Yeah, no shit, Damn. right? Wow. At the end of the movie, the point that we see is that Daniel is working on getting permission to exhume Diane's body. Do you know if that went forward? Never happened. Okay. He lost. He he appeals. All kinds of shit. He lost Mm -hmm. them all. And we also learn the one good thing. Of course, we know that I'm always like rah-rah about therapy. And we know that uh, the son, Brian, the only survivor, has started going to therapy. Because, as Jay says, the pediatrician says, hey, is this kid in therapy? And Danny's like, no, we're not going to put him in therapy. And the pediatrician says to Jay, you need to get this kid in therapy. Right. So once a reported, a mandated reporter says, hey, this kid isn't in therapy, now he's going to therapy. Danny's all of a sudden so eager to get him in therapy. Yeah. He just is not trying to do right by that child. He's not at all. He really doesn't care. Doesn't care. I really wish that Jay could adopt him, right? And then the brother and Jay could. I spent almost all night last night trying to find out and like, what's the state? Because the kid's like 15, 16 now. Yeah. And I didn't know if maybe he lives with Jay, maybe he still lives with Danny. You know, they are off off the grid. Um, (sighs) There's so many little tidbits I have for you for after. Not like that many, but a few. So Jackie Hance. Mother of the three of the three girls, she became pregnant um, in 2011. Aww. First round of in vitro, and she said when she went through, somebody suggested like, "Hey, maybe take your eggs and just see." She said she was just a zombie. She was like just doing it just because someone said maybe you should. Yeah, and she didn't even want to do it. They were just like, "Whatever." First round, pregnant. So she had also had her tubes tied after Katie was born. So oh, that wow. was the whole thing with in vitro. So Casey Rose Hans was born in 2011. Her name, K for Katie, A for Allison, S for sister, E for Emma, Y for you, Casey. I have chills. Um, May 18th, 2019 is the Hance Family Foundation 5K Walk and Run. It's the 10th annual. It's been 10 years since the anniversary of 
the crash in 2019 or July 2019 is 10 years for the crash. So they're having a 5K walk run um, in New York for the family foundation they started to help little girls with self-esteem and programs and all kinds of really amazing things they've done. Um, Statistics for you, because I believe that Diane was a functioning, walking around alcoholic, high functioning alcoholic. And I don't think this was anything new. She might not have driven blindingly drunk, but probably from the bar nights with Sheila, she probably did drive drunk occasionally. Probably more common than we think, or more often than we think. It is common. The National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism estimates that one-third of alcoholics are women, although many experts consider that estimate too low. Of course it is, because of the strategies women often use to conceal their addictions. Some 5.3% of American women drink in a way that threatens their health. And I can say I was this person. Like, I'm a completely recovered, like, serious psycho binge drinker. And I just know that I was a sneaky motherfucker. I was. And I didn't want to get caught. And I would do anything, you know? And it's like looking back on it, I think that's obviously why this affects me so hard. Because it's like, I see it, you know? But... It's just hard. It's really like, I I just believe that she was this hidden in perfectionism, extreme responsibility. The opposite schedule thing helped because he could come home at night and she's asleep. But how do you know she's asleep? Maybe she's actually passed out. She might have just been drinking all evening and you don't even know. You don't even care anyway. You're not paying attention to when she's got the kids. It contributes to the denial. I mean, it could be plausible that he could 100% believe it because he didn't see it because he rarely really saw it. I mean, after the kids are in bed, before he came home, maybe she just quietly drinks at home by herself. Yeah. Right? Um, She was already like the most extremely secretive person. Like close friends and family knew nothing of her life. And it goes right in line with somebody who is a long-term high-functioning alcoholic. Yeah. It just, to me, is so clear and obvious. And Werner spits, too. Like, it's just everyone but Danny Schuler. Because I would believe that Jay has come around. Yeah. I think she's got to. She's got a head she on her shoulders. She knows. And she seemed so close to finally accepting it in that meeting with Werner. So I just, it's only a matter of time. She was the godmother of Aaron, too, the little two-year-old girl. Mm -hmm. She was, I mean, Diane chose her to be the godmother. They were very close. Yeah. And Jade, right away, goes, yeah, she smoked weed, like, every night just to go to bed. What does Danny say the first time that she never smoked marijuana? (laughs) Like, what are you talking about? Right. I believe it from someone that is more forthcoming, like Jay, where she's saying, yeah, I mean, she had trouble sleeping. And she had Ambien in the past. So it's like, yeah, I totally believe it. And then my thought here, too, also, is she's driving like a psychopath. She's flying, flying, flying. Um, At the McDonald's, she made herself a huge screwdriver, way more booze than she thought. She pounds it. By the time she gets on the road, she's way more drunk than she thought. She at some point drank more. Because it's in her system. It's in the stomach contents. So she drank more at some point, pulled over, probably gets nauseous as fuck, pukes. Hey, what cures nausea? Weed. Weed. So when you see her at the uh, pullout, right? And she's over there and people are like, she's doing all kinds of weird shit in the back, this and that. See her throwing up. She's probably smoking weed after she pukes. So then she gets on the road. And if you don't smoke all the time, yeah, it can fuck you up. And then you've already got weed on. uh, You've already got all this booze on board. It's this is a perfect storm. And honestly, if Diane was still alive, she'd be doing she'd probably still be in jail, 
to be honest. She would be in prison right now. Yeah. Probably 15 years minimum. No shit. Five kids in the car that drunk. Because if she hadn't hit them on the road, even she would have still hit someone. She would have something would have happened. There was no way she was making it home. Yeah. Even going the right way on the freeway. Absolutely. And she gets off the parkway and goes all these different weird routes and gets lost and then turns around and comes back to the parkway. Obviously is not with it. She's lost. She's uh, not incoherent, whatever. the She's, you know, thrown off, um, disoriented. And so she gets on the off ramp. She doesn't know the area and she already had gotten off and got back on. And now by then she's blasted drunk. Not, I mean, just not just like we're drunk. We are drunk as fuck. Driving up an off-ramp. Yeah. I don't know. I just... It seems so clear. Yeah, it really is obvious to anyone that's an outsider. Right? It's just so sad that, you know, they weren't able to give the other families some sort of closure. Because you would just hope that they would say, man, we didn't know this. You know, even if you, you didn't see it yourself, you could still say... I had no idea. I'm so sorry this happened, you know, but to just not accept it, fight against it, say that you're looking for the quote truth, which has been shown to not be true, and then sue everyone on top of it. That right there is says volumes. Yeah. He sued the parents of the dead children, his brother and sister-in-law. I mean, and you can read between the lines. Warren has no use for Danny either. Like even before. It's yeah. just clear. Can you imagine that being your brother-in-law? No. <laughs> I think you wouldn't have any use oh for Oh my God. Either. You know what else? You know what else they say? Is at the funeral. The kids' funerals and everything. Somebody said Diane's mother was there at the funeral. Yes. Standing in the back. Just like by herself. Jay saw or Somebody told Jay that she never saw her. She never met her or anything. None of these people had ever like met her mother. Mm-hmm. But somebody said she was there and that she had reached out to Diane multiple times in her life and tried to reconnect with her. Diane was not having it. Again, I believe she left her husband for another man. And then dad became like a saint. Mom was the devil. And her brothers had relationships with her mom. All her brothers did. It's interesting. Yeah. So anyway, on that lovely note my god <laughs> yeah i'm i'm ready to not ever watch there's something wrong with aunt diane ever again <laughs> it's just also um one of those where it's like just drunk driving man i mean it's so easy not to do what the fuck it's very horrific the kind of damage that someone can do by getting behind the wheel under the influence and yet people still do it when it's so easy not to. People do it every day with kids in their car, with kids in the car seat, just riding down the goddamn road like it's nothing. And I really think that, you know, Diane was probably a seasoned drunk driver. But this time she took it too far and it was a tragic mistake. It was. However, oh, my God, I just. Yeah, this is just over and over again. There's so many lessons of don't do it. There's so many ways to just not just drive drunk. So drive don't. drunk. Get an Uber. So that's there's something wrong with Aunt Diane. It's hard to come away from that movie not feeling like you have almost like learned something or it's really honestly just the greatest study in denial and what people can make themselves believe. Yeah. And your reality can be what you want. Yeah. How people can just go through life and just change it their mind is just like this doesn't exist to me when it's right in front of them so it's very 
yeah, that's interesting to see people going through that. But it is such a cautionary tale. It really is. So that's there's something wrong with Aunt Diane. Everyone hug your family, hug your children, tell everyone you love you love them. You never know. Be nice to each other. Be safe. Take care of people. We love you, everyone. And if you see the signs, don't ignore them. No. And I don't care if the person's going to be mad at you. Like, let them be mad at you. Okay. And you'll get over it. It's temporary. Yeah, for real. So, yeah. That's it for this week for us. I wouldn't... I. I don't know if I would recommend this documentary. I think... Yes. I think it's honestly something... That is a it, it's eye opening as fuck. Okay, and if you know someone or you like have family or anything or you've gone through alcoholism or know anyone with it, it's it's something that I feel like you can take something away from it. Yeah, I would agree. An with understanding, that. like it's hard to explain, but I understand more about even myself listening to them talk about Diane and what she went through, hiding things. I did the same, like. I think that's part of it. And also, you know, like drunk driving accidents have had this in my life as well. I mean, adjacent, it, it, there's, there's a lot of understanding to be gained from it. And also, it's just a study in how people can just believe what they want. It doesn't matter what you tell them. Sometimes you just got to walk away. They're never going to listen. Oh, God. Yeah, I think it makes me too panicked, to be perfectly honest. I walk away from it like completely scared to be on the road, very anxious about things. Maybe I'm too much like Diane in the control issues, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> but I do think that, yeah, having any experience being around anybody with alcoholism, it is definitely a lesson to speak up. Yes. You know, because I think I, today I wouldn't because I'm, I'm, I'm grown. Uh, but I think that we've all been in situations where like people are just doing things that you're not saying anything about. And there was a, a definite point where maybe someone not in denial or maybe even whatever. Danny could have said something. Jay could have said something. Anybody could have said something and encouraged her to get better because there are probably signs. But I think that it's, it, it is a lesson to just stand up yeah. and say when people aren't safe. I agree. But yeah, with well, all that said, we will be safe on the road for the next week. Yeah. And uh, leave us a great review <laughs> and tell your friends. <laughs> yeah. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And then we will see you next time with another documentary. Sounds great. Yeah. So take care. Be nice. Have a good week. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. So this person spent quite a bit of time in the commission of this monstrous act. Hi, y'all. I'm Vincent, host of Gone Cold Podcast, Texas True Crime. Each week, we take a thorough look at lesser-known unsolved cases throughout the Lone Star State, hear victims' stories as told by their loved ones, and expert insight from law enforcement and medical professionals. You know, using a hatchet, that's an extremely violent and rageful type of act. The truth is out there somewhere, and you can help us find it. You know, before I die, I want to know who did it. Please join us as we examine forgotten Texas cases.
Subscribe and listen to Gone Cold Podcast, Texas True Crime, on your favorite podcatcher. There are monsters among us. Hey there, this is Brianna from Murder Dictionary Podcast. On Murder Dictionary, we choose a different subject for each letter of the alphabet. And over the course of a few episodes, we discuss multiple cases which explore that subject from several different angles. Last season, our alphabet went from A for axe murder all the way through Z for zealots. So far this season, our ABCs have explored the topics of adultery, bikers, cannibals, and even dirty cops. So come check out Murder Dictionary on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you like to listen to podcasts. And be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to see what topics our Murder Dictionary alphabet will cover next. guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.